Thank you, ladies. Some of you will know that song is Ashokan Farewell. It's a song that was, if memory serves me correctly, written by an individual who ran a camp at an end of a summer. He had traveled, um, and he wanted a, a song that kind of captured the highs and lows of the joys of being together and also the sadness of saying goodbye. And that, I think, so often encapsulates the Christian life well. There are highs and lows. There are highs and welcoming new friends and watching the Lord at work redemptively building His church, but there are also the, law, the lows of saying goodbye to friends, struggling in our own sin. And it would seem to us that in those low points, our joy would dissipate. But if we've been listening to John well, what John writes is he encourages, he commends to our hearts a joy that is not dependent on the externals, but is rather dependent upon our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. The lowest believer on this planet is still higher than the highest unsaved person in the world. Our joy is made full, John says in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, he writes, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That our joy would be overflowing. Even if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, even if we are burned in Nero's garden, that our joy, our gladness would be complete in Him. Now, it's joy that doesn't maybe always bring with it feelings of jubilation, ecstasy, however you want to describe it. But it is a joy that gives peace in the midst of the stormy seasons of life. It's the kind of joy that lifts you up and moves you forward even on your darkest day because you know where you are going. It's the kind of joy, John has has said already, that allows us to know who Christ is, allow us to know our relationship to Him, that we are allowed to rest in His atoning work and in His advocacy on our behalf this morning. It's the kind of joy that calls us not to think flippantly about doctrine and the things of God, but the kind of joy that causes believers to stand flat-footed and to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's the kind of joy that leaves us knowing that we are children of God. It's the kind of joy that causes us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they are dramatically different than we are. It's a real and lasting joy. So what a joy it is to come here this morning and to be with all of you. You know, it's a remarkably odd thing to come in and do what we've already done to this point this morning. Now some of you are going, what? Church has been a normal part of my life for years. I want to encourage you, it's not odd at all for religion to exist in the world. People gather in churches all around the world. 
That is a reality. And not all of them are Christian churches. People gather in religious centers. And, and every generation has been filled with certain types of religion. That's not what I'm talking about that we've done this morning. What we have done this morning is to come and to sing for the glory of God. For the edification of one another. To draw one another closer to the throne of grace. To be a reminder in each other's lives as we live with difficult illnesses and situations in our lives. That this is not all that there is. We are not here to merely exercise outward religion. We are here to exalt the living God. And that in the year 2021 in Christian circles is a very odd thing to do. But we do it for joy. A joy that lasts. And with that in mind, if you would stand and hear God's Word yet again. John here writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of the living God. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. This is God's Word to you and I. It is our inheritance this morning, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning humbled, knowing that we are still sinful, that so often we neglect Your graces, that so often we think low of being called Christians, that so often we forget the wonderful things that You have written in Your Word. So this morning, would You stir our hearts anew and inscribe upon them the things that You have written here eternally. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Beloved, there is a, a great joy to come to the second verse today and consider its meaning to us. There is overwhelming benefit to us in looking at verse 2. Now, I about threw a conniption fit over verse 1 and all of its glory. But verse 2 has just as much truth packed into it. So much richness. You know, there's this sad reality in our day. It, it is one of the most heartbreaking things, and I see it over and over and over again, and it is this, that men stand in Christian pulpits not for the joy that John writes about in the person and the work of Christ, but rather so many men come to the pulpit that God has entrusted to them, and they do it just merely for a sizable check. God has given us something so much better here. I guarantee you that there is nothing that may be found on any financial instrument that is even proportionate 1% as glorious as the beautiful doctrines that we find in this second verse. What is written here tells us what it means to be a Christian. And for what it is, what it looks like to live the Christian life in a world that is in the power of the evil one. 
Most people, I'm convinced, in our generation don't even really take time to consider the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. I think the reason why so many in our day and age don't want to be Christians, now, theologically, it's because they're dead in their trespasses and sins, but I think in their thinking, it's because all they see Christianity is is a, a morality, an outward work of keeping rules, a formal uh, ceremonial thing that people do once a week. But our gathering is not about formal ceremonial anything. Our gathering is about being reminded of the joy that we have been given in the person and the work of Christ. The reason that the church is so weak today is because she has forgotten, I am convinced, who she is. She has forgotten what has been provided for her in the person of Christ. And so she has gone out after the world. Now, you've, if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me go on and on about how the church is giving herself over to the world. Beloved, some people want to convince you that the church is giving herself over to the world in the endeavor of missions. But I promise you, in forgetting the identity that we have in Christ, the church has not gone after the world to bring the world to Christ. The church is going after the world to throw herself and all of the glorious doctrines that she has inherited to this point before lost people dead in their trespasses and sins. And there is nothing that is more heart-wrenching than that. You see, one of the realities of a church neglecting her inheritance, her identity, is that she starts to eat away at herself. She starts to argue. She starts to, to erode and implode in, internally because people will not argue about things that actually matter, things of identity. And, and what is pictured here in verse 2 instead will argue about secondary, tertiary issues. will argue in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today about things that the Bible doesn't even mention. Not even in implication. Uh, we may be in agreement all the way down the line, but I've seen believers who, if they disagree on things like eschatology, the order of how things will happen in the end times, they'll eat each other alive or they'll sneer and they'll complain about each other behind one another's backs. That is a symptom of an illness of a church that has forgotten who she is. Because the reality is this, this morning, beloved, one of the things we'll learn, and I don't want to get ahead of the, the, the game here, but one of the things that we'll learn is that if you are in Christ, one of the great guarantees you have is that your Savior is coming back. And if you want to use arguments to tear the church down about exactly when He's coming back and how He's coming back, I think you forgot the glorious reality that He's just coming back. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't think about eschatology well, and I'm not one of the people that says, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the pan-millennialist, it'll all pan out in the end. That's nonsense. We should have good arguments, but I think we can love people whom we ardently disagree with. We argue about politics, about methodology. We have people who don't understand what Baptist doctrine is in its historical context, but they would die to keep the name Baptist on the sign outside. The reason that we find the church in that state is because she has forgotten who she is. 
The reason that we grumble and complain is because we have amnesia about our inheritance in Christ and our relationship to Him. We need to be humbled and strengthened under the meaning of this one verse. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we will see Him as He is. Most, I believe, of our unhappiness is because we forget who we are in Christ. We, we know that we live in a world that is in the power of the evil one. We live in a dark world where we sin and when we, where we are sinned against. The reason, though, in that world that we are so miserable as Christians is because we fail to take into context our identity in Christ. We forget when we fail ourselves or when others sin against us who we are in Jesus and where we are going. Do we suffer? Yes. Do we sin? Yes. But the question we must ask this morning is, do we have a great Savior who is able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses and who is at this very moment, yet without sin, pleading on our behalf? And the answer is a resounding yes a thousand times through eternity. question this morning is, is this life all there is? And the answer to that question is no. The fuller reality of who we are in our identities can't be found in our ethnicity. Any of the, the things that CNN and all of the political pundits will, will talk about this afternoon. The reality of our identity is rooted in Christ and in what He has done for us. Most of our spiritual failure, in fact, I believe, is due to the fact that we forget who we are. Again, an, an, an issue of identity. I don't know if you've ever had the experience when you were younger of doing something that you were not supposed to do. I guarantee you all have. But to have your parent come and look at you and tell you they're disappointed in you. And to tell you, you must not behave in whatever way you were behaving because they love you and because you are their child. To be reminded in discipline, not in heavy handed just beating you over the head about something you've done wrong, but to draw you in and to remind you, you are my beloved child. Live like it. I believe that's what John is doing here. He is reminding us of our great relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of that relationship, he wants us to be reminded of the righteousness that we are to walk in. The Bible never tells us merely to do something without first reminding us of who we are in Christ. Every imperative of the New Testament is leveled in the shadows of the indicatives of who we are in Christ Jesus. The reason that we are called to live lives of justice and mercy, lives of righteousness, is not because God is waiting for us to get our act together before He can save us. God has never waited on anything in His redemptive story. He is active. 
The God of the heavens, rather, is reminding us here through John who we are that we might walk in righteousness. Before John moves on into verse 3, again, he wants us to know who we are in Christ. And so he begins, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And then he goes on in this verse, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. What John is after here is pretty plain. He is writing to us to comfort us in our lives that are saturated with the darkness of the world. And He aims not at the righteousness first, but He aims first at who we are being called children of God. Out of who we are as called children of God then. All of these things interconnect that we've already learned. He's calling us to walk in the light, to guard the commandments of Christ, to love the brothers, to run from the world. And if you are in fact a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what John is saying is that these things will naturally proceed from your life. Now we must be careful how we read verse 2. I think the tendency when we come to verse 2 is to read it as a bunch of comparative statements. Almost every English translation of this verse writes and renders into the English the original Greek in such a fashion and I'm not going to put you to sleep with a, with a Greek uh, lecture here. Uh, But almost every English translation translates this in comparative statements. But but that's not really what John is talking about here at all. Uh, What we really find in this statement, and I don't want to get into translations and all of those things, but, but what we find here is that there are some manuscripts that have included the word but... But we know that we are children, or that when he, excuse me, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And that but in most of the manuscripts is not there. And as we lean into this text and see what the Lord is really communicating through John, what we find is not three comparative disjointed statements moving around. We find three succinct positive statements. I don't know about you, Brian, but if I want to encourage somebody, I don't give them a bunch of maybes. I don't give them a bunch of, well, we can cross our fingers and our eyes and toes and hope something happens. If I'm going to give encouragement to somebody, I want to give them solid footing, somewhere to stand. And that's exactly what John is doing here. He is saying to us, beloved, and I also believe that that the word... Um, appeared in the second phrase could better be translated to be shown or expressed or displayed. Some have argued manifested. A good rendering of this verse is, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been manifested, has not yet been expressed. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. You see, the reality is, If the world hates you, if the religious crowd snarls at you, if the world scoffs at your identity in Christ, 
You can meet that scoffing. You can meet those snarls with the reality so you are still in Christ. So you still have this identity rooted in who Jesus is. The Bible continually has this encouragement that if you are really in Jesus, Kenneth Copeland is a liar. Joyce Meyer is a false prophet. The, the, the health and wealth prosperity gospel is not congruent with the Word of God. Because you are not promised that if you come to Jesus, you will have a bunch of material wealth. Indeed, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Beloved, part of the reason what I started with, why the church is going out and giving herself over to the world is because, again, we've lost our identity in Christ. And so we concern ourselves with whether or not the world likes us. But can I tell you this? On the authority of the Word of God, we should be concerned if the world does like us. If the world says, boy, I really find their ethics comfortable, then something in our ethics is wrong. Because the, the, the truth is, if we are really to follow Jesus, if we are really to surrender our lives to Him, there is going to be something different about us. What matters, ultimately, is not that the world loves us and thinks we're great. What matters is that we know who we are in Christ. And so John gives us that foundation in this one verse. There are three positive statements about our identity in Christ. That we know that we are children of God. That we know that we are destined for glory. And then we know something about that glory. We can qualify what is going to happen in that glorified state. So first, we know that we are children of God. He does not say, look at the, look at the verse, he does not say, beloved, one day you will be children of God. At some point in the future, you're going to be a child of God. That's not what he says. He says, now we are children of God. Before you move on, the first thing that you need to know is that you are a child of God. And we know that we are children of God because of what he just told us in verse 1. That the Father has lavished his love upon us such that we are now the called children of God. Not many of us were noble. Not many of us were wise. Not many of us were successful. Not many of us were looked upon by the lost and dying world. And the, the world thought, oh, they're great. Should add them into heaven. We're lowly people. And yet, in our sinful state, God lavished His love upon us such that when people come and ask us why in the world would, you ever, would the Lord ever lavish His love upon you, we can throw up our hands and say, for His own glory. And you don't have to believe it because so we are. Here we are, 2,000 years off, gathered together at 810 Austin Street, praising His name, giving glory for the Word that He has revealed through His apostles and prophets. So we are. We belong to Him. Not because of anything we've done religiously, but because of everything that He has done to accomplish our redemption. In spite of all that we are, so we are, children of God. 
It is a fact. It is a certainty. It is not something that we negotiate away. It's something we stand in hard stop. We are children of God now. We are at this moment children of God because of the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit and the work of the Father redemptively. 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. We learned about this several weeks ago. The anointing that you have received from Him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. We are called children of God. We know that we are Christians because the Spirit has anointed us and opened our eyes that we see Jesus for who He is and we have placed our finished trust in Him. He has anointed us. He has made us children of God. What the Spirit taught us is what verse 1 further illustrates that we are God's children, that we are called children of God. And here's the reality, friends. Think about this this morning. You know, when we sing Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as a sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've first begun. This is the reality that John is telling you in this first statement this morning. On that 10,000th day that we have sang about since we were small as Christians in the faith, many of us, on that 10,000th day of eternity, we will no more be a child of God on that 10,000th day than we are a child of God this very moment. We are children of God. Now, we will be more sanctified on that 10,000th day. We will be more kind. We will be more focused on Christ, we will be more gentle, but we will be no more a child of God on that day than we are at this very moment. The prodigal son has just as much, is just as much a son as the elder brother is. As we come to Christ, as we are converted to Christ, as, as the Spirit births us into the body, as He regenerates our heart and takes out the heart of stone and adds a heart of flesh, at that moment we are children, called children of God, and we are no more children after that than when He first saved us. Isn't that a glorious truth? You have an identity this morning, beloved, that I don't think... We, I, I don't, I've studied this out for two weeks now, and I don't think I've begun to get my head wrapped around it. You are a child of God and there is nothing you can do to add or take away from that reality. It's a place for you to rest this morning. It's a place for you to worship from that you did not garner, you did not work for, you did not accomplish your spiritual birthright. God did that for you and in you. What a marvelous reality. You see, behavior doesn't determine relationship. You are either at this second a child of God or you are not. You can't be a son one day and not the next. And any theology this morning, and there are many churches this morning that will teach that if you backslide and they'll put different labels on it theologically, if you do this or you do that, then ultimately you can lose your salvation. And people will go on to teach and they'll, they'll appeal... To Judas. Well, Judas, Judas loved Jesus and he, he followed. And then he fell away. See, he lost his salvation. Judas was not a son of God. He was a son of perdition. 
The Bible says so. We, on the other hand, are called children of God. The question is not how you live. The question is, who do you belong to? Who's your father? Are you at this moment a child of God? You can't be a child of God because you're religious. You can't be a child of God because you're righteous. You can't be a child of God because you have all of the right theological answers. You are a child of God only by grace. See, the reality is Jesus came not to save those who could save themselves in any way. Jesus came to save those who were lost. And He's still doing that work. May His name be praised forever this morning. So the question then is, well, how can we know that we are called children of God? Now, I'm not going to exhaust the, the list of things that give us assurance of our faith, but I do want to mention a few to you. One, if we are really called children of God, we are individuals who are aware that there is a new life, that there is something different going on inside of us, that we are not like the rest of the world. Paul writes about it to the church at Galatia in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ. Yes, I have a physical life, but the spiritual life that I have, there is this reality that I'm aware of that God gives me strength in that life, that He is indwelling me by His Spirit, and He is convicting me and He is conforming me to the image of His beloved Son. We know that we are called children of God because we are given this new nature. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has Come, we know that we are children of God when we know that there is something also wrong within us. People, people begin to see in their lives sinful patterns of behavior as they grow in Christ. And often, for believers even, sometimes there's this knee-jerk reaction of, oh my gosh, if I am this sinful, I must not be a believer. No, in fact, if you are convicted of your sin and you can see that it's sinful and that it offends a holy God, praise God, that is His work in you. And the question is, will you repent of that sin and turn to Christ? Will you continue to be conformed by the work of the Spirit? You see, if, if we are really called children of God, we will be aware of this new life. And our faith is not just about moral, pietistic living. The world loves preachers who will preach morality, who will preach politics, who will preach doing better and trying harder. The world loves those kind of preachers in a thousand different flavors. It's like a spiritual Baskin-Robbins. Every generation... But if the preacher stands up and says, you're all and I, apart from Christ, are dead in your trespasses and sins, and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, he must give us a new life. He must give us a new nature. He must, through the work of his Spirit, save us by his will alone. The world will hate that gospel. In fact, many Christian churches hate that gospel. But can I commend it to you this morning? That is the definite article gospel. It's the only one that is. 
God must give us new life. And for, for us to know that we are children of God is that we have an awareness that we have been given that new nature. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And, and what we find in this new life is that we see the reality of our sinfulness and our depravity. We also see the glorious nature of Christ's redeeming work on our behalf. So in that new awareness of life, there's also something that's very felt, and that is this longing to know your Father more fully. And when you come to Christ, when you are birthed anew into the kingdom of God, you know Him truly, but you don't know Him fully. And so there remains in the child of God, who is a called child of God, uh, uh, this longing that I want to know my Father. I want to know His will. I want to know how He wants me to order my life. I want to know how my time should be used. I want to know where to invest my money for His glory because my life is no longer mine. It's hidden in Christ. It belongs to Him. I've been purchased with a price. And, and then in that desiring to know the Father, there are these moments, and I'm sure that many of you have had them, where, where you cry out, Father. In fact, if, uh, Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 8. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. We want to know you. We want to commune with you. The joy we have that John is talking about is really in the fellowship that we have with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a called child of God. That also issues out in John's encouragement that we will love the brethren more than we do the world. In fact, we will flee the world to love the church. Now, that may be a very startling thought for you. What do you mean love all of these people? I mean, I find some really objectionable things about some of these members of LifePoint Baptist Church. They don't have their act together in many ways. That preacher wears a dorky little bow tie every Sunday morning. What John writes about in loving the brethren isn't that we won't find things that are object object objectionable in the body, but that we will seek with everything in us to actually love in spite of those objections. Love inside the body comes with being sinned against. But we are given the power through Christ to love people who sin against us and to confront them in a loving way. I'm afraid that all that we hear about loving the brother is that if we if we are called children of God, then we are going to automatically have this reflex to love everybody in our particular uh, church. But that's just not true. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different places ideologically and the like. And, and to love one another will actually be work. And, and what John is saying is not just this, it just naturally happens. It's something that we actually will act upon. Individuals in this body who don't get along, my pastoral encouragement to you is that is the place where Jesus is seeking to sanctify you more than any other. And if you run from those relationships, you're running from His work in your life. We're not talking about feelings here. We're talking about a reality that, that our brothers and sisters in Christ are at this very moment children of God. 
regardless of what they do. So our love towards them is not conditioned upon the things they do. Our love for them is conditioned upon who they are in Jesus. Jesus set His love upon us prior to the foundation of the world. Knowing all of our sin, all of our rebellion while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins. And in the year 2021, some Christians have the audacity to say, I don't like that guy. I don't like his choice of music. I don't like him. Fill in the blank, whatever the petty issue is. And can I encourage you that that demeans the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. It demeans the grace that he has poured out for you. The reality is, if we really are called children of God, we're not always going to have hallmark feelings for one another. Because we have something better than hallmark. We have a common Savior who is redeeming us into His image. And we can love one another in that direction. So we know that we are children of God. But we also know something else. We know that we are destined for glory. Beloved, we are God's children now, John says. What we will be has not yet been made known, has not been expressed, has not been displayed yet. John here is not saying, well, we are children of God and I wonder what will happen to us. No, rather he is saying, what we will be has not yet been seen to the world, and a part of that, I think we, what we will be in glory isn't known to any of us in this room this morning because we would fall down dead. If we considered the reality of what Christ is going to make us into in eternity, we would flat out fall out of our chair. I, I've been at so many funerals that where I just want to get up and kind of shake the preacher by the collar and try and, you know, smack him in the head with the Bible, make me through osmosis, get some of it in there. doesn't work that way. Uh, the reality is I've sat through so many funeral services where, where the person who has departed, all that is spoken of is merely like they've been sent up to sit on a fluffy cloud and they, there they are, still themselves. The reality is what the individual we have lost in Christ will be, we can't even conceive of. It has not yet appeared. It hasn't been manifest to us. We don't know in the fullest sense. But what we do know is this. We are destined for glory as children of the King. Here it will not be shown. Our Lord left glory. He left a throne where He was worshipped day and night, where His holiness was extolled, and He came into the world that lies in the power of the evil one. And He lived His life perfectly in our place. And He suffered for our sin. And He atoned for every ounce of our rebellion. In fact, John, in his Gospel, begins in chapter 1 by kind of just describing the trajectory of Jesus' life. The true light, which gives light to everyone, has come into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Jesus lived a life where who He was was not manifested to the entire world. The whole world didn't see Jesus in all of His glory. They saw Him as just some religious nut who was trying to upset the, the, the Jewish religion. 
so it is in our life. We will live lives where the world will look at us and go, you really believe that gospel? You really believe that, Jesus? And what John is saying in these two verses is the reason they can't understand why you believe Him is not so much about you, although the glory that will be manifested in you hasn't been revealed. They just don't know who He is. Because the Spirit of God has not anointed their mind in that inclination. But we see all throughout the the biblical New Testament narrative of how Christ, after He suffered all things in this life, He passed into glory and he is enthroned at this very moment. Paul saw him on the road to Damascus. John saw him on the uh, Isle of Patmos. John is not writing here from a, I hope, maybe, this is a reality. John is saying, it is settled. The glory that we will have, you can't even believe to understand, but you will live in glory. I think one of the narratives that shows this this dualistic reality of the children of God on this planet being humbled and abased, but knowing that there is future glory is found most fully in Acts chapter 7 at Stephen Stoning. You'll remember this narrative. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. That's the religious crowd. And they ground their teeth at Him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What we will be in glory has not yet been revealed. It has not been manifested. Don't expect the lost world to high-five you for following Christ. But beloved, we are destined for glory but before we get to glory we will be humiliated like Christ we will live our lives rejected by the world if we really love the Jesus of the Bible then other Christians who actually don't know the biblical Jesus will mock and persecute us but one day that glory will be revealed C.S. Lewis and I know I've shared this with you because it's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes and I have many Uh, But he wrote, and I think this is just captured so well. Remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one of the other destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. Who we will be one day has not yet appeared. The reason I can love every person in the body of Christ is in the strength of Christ knowing that who they are has not yet appeared to me. Beloved, don't live your lives judging your brother, sister, Christian based off of what they are now. Have a long view. See what God is doing in them. You see, we don't have to wonder. We know that we are headed for a permanent state of glory. We know that we are children of God and we can know because we are children of God that we are destined 
to glory. It hasn't been displayed. It's not yet appeared. But that is where we are going. And this changes everything about the difficulty we experience in our life. Jesus had to walk through the darkness of this world. And and he was sinned against. And he was spat upon. And he was bruised for our transgression. So the question is, for those of us who follow him, should we expect any better treatment? And the answer is no. If we're going to walk through this world on our way to glory the way that Jesus did, we should expect suffering and persecution. One of the first things that I was told as a young pastor in that lobby was this by a a member of this church who's no longer here. Jay, you have to be careful with what you tell people about what the Bible says because you have to remember they vote with their money. That's true. Jesus saves with his blood so you can die with your money. The commission of pastors is not given through offerings. It's given by the anointing of the Spirit of Almighty God. And it is my job not to tickle your ears or to make you feel good. It's my job to expound the Scriptures and to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints earnestly. And you know what I think happens when uh, pastors do that? Individuals give lavishly because of the joy that they have in Jesus. What an exhausting ministry so many pastors have just running after those big checks, those sizable checks. When the, 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 the fact is, the glory we're destined for outweighs all of the money that's ever been given in the coffers of the church of the living God. The the glory that Christ is working out in His people is wonderful. And so we should expect, to get back on track, that we are going to suffer in some degree, whether it's light or heavy, persecution. Richard Baxter wrote this, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than He went through Himself. He that into God's kingdom comes must enter by this door. Whenever we, we bear difficult Things in our life, whenever people disagree with us, whenever people leave, whenever people uh, slander what we believe, whenever people mock the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the reality that we have to rest in is that our Jesus walked through the darker portion of that room. And that in following Him through this dark world, He's not leading us to a potential rest. He is leading us to everlasting glory. I think one of the most wonderful verses in all of Scripture, if this verse doesn't just give you so much consolation in your weary heart in this dark world, I don't know what would. It is this verse in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for Him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, He set His face towards Jerusalem. Do you know what was at Jerusalem? The cross, all of the suffering, all of the shame, all of the mockery, all of the humiliation was at Jerusalem. And when the fullness of time had come, Jesus didn't go, "Mm, I think there's a better path to glory. He didn't say, you know what, I think I'll go around Jerusalem. I'll find a better way. And we find our Savior there in that garden at Gethsemane praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. 
He's not praying that just as an empty thing. He's praying that for our example and our edification that we would follow Him and set our face to meet our suffering, not so that our flesh would rejoice, but that our God would receive glory. That is what gives men and women the strength to speak and to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we can be assured that we will never be removed if we are children of God now from the promises of the glory that is to come. Romans chapter 8 verse 38. For I am sure, Paul writes, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't look like it now, beloved. Glory has not yet appeared, but we will be glorified. We can't be separated from the glorifying love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And somebody's going to stand up and say, how can you be sure? What if you really mess up? What if you sin greatly? And it was Spurgeon that says, I, have a great, I am a great sinner and I have, a great, I have a great need for Christ and I have a great Christ for my need. Jesus brings every child home that he births into his kingdom. Romans 8, 29, and 30 tell us, though, where our grounds for assurance that Romans 8, 38, and 39 will come to pass. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That is our promise this morning. You want to write something on a check that will thrill me? Write that verse on a check and deposit it into the spiritual account of your life. If you are a child of God now, you will be found in glory. God guarantees the work that He's begun. He's bringing His children home. We are here with a permanent guarantee. Paul wrote in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our current suffering for Christ then ultimately proves that we are heading to glory. So every time somebody slanders you, Every, some, every time somebody mocks you, every time somebody says that you think too much of the Bible and the gospel, rejoice because what those statements are telling you is that you are bound for glory. So, we know who we are. We are chil called children of God. We know that we are destined to glory. We also know something about that glory. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been made manifest. It has not yet appeared. We know, though, that when He appears, we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We know that our glorification will be complete at His appearing. And this is a picture of the grand doctrine of the second coming. Now this is what I was talking about earlier. This is the point where everybody starts to go to war about the exact order of when he's coming. And we miss the whole inheritance that John is encouraging us with this morning. He's coming back. 
He, he is going to glorify all of those that he has purchased by his blood. Uh, this is given for our edification, for our joy. The second coming is as much. Do you know this morning that you're a child of God? Say amen. amen. You can be sure of this as much as you know of that reality. Also, his second coming is a sure thing. It's going to happen. It will come to pass. And in that moment, all the, the evil that is in this world, the power of the evil one will be dispelled. And all righteousness will reign. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But according to His promise, we are, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are waiting for Jesus. When He appears, we're going to be like Him. We can know that our glory is a glory that is, is, is under the kingship and the rule of Jesus throughout all of the earth for all of His glory. Secondly, we will see Him as He is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We will see Him face to face. The world will be right because Christ and His glory will be the central focus of everything. Can you imagine waking up in eternity and you turn on the TV and Fox News has nothing to report on but the glory of Almighty God? I mean, nobody's going to complain anymore. We don't even care about the weather at this point because the glory of God permeates all things and we ourselves have been glorified we are in a state that we didn't even have the ability to reason out in this life we will see him as he is we will know him more and more truly in eternity. But we won't know Him fully. We'll continue to grow in our understanding of His glory. We'll continue to behold the wonders of His glory. But we'll never come to exhaust all of His glory. I think one of the most glorious realities about glory is that when we're there, all of the arguments... Theologically, that are tertiary and don't matter will be settled and none of us will care. We will all finally see that Jesus is at the center ruling and reigning and that's what really mattered all the time anyway. May I encourage and commend to your hearts as you wrestle with your own personal theology, if your theology does not lead to Jesus being more glorified and at the center of His universe, then it's a bad theology. This is the great reality of glory. Not only will we see Him as He is, but we will be like Him. So I've thought throughout this past week about the state of glory that we will find ourselves in. This one reality has permeated my thinking. And that is that if anybody, there have been many people that come throughout the church and they want to teach perfectionism, they want to teach ways of thinking where, where you know, we can be holy saints now. Like we can be perfected in this life. That's an utter lie. Because every time the greatest saints in Scripture come face to face 
with the glory of God, do you know what they do? They fall down trembling. Glory's hard on sinners like you and I. We don't have capacity for true glory now. Uh, to conceive of all that Christ is and all that He will do in us would just make us again to fall out. But what John tells us here in chapter in verse 2 is that we will be like Him and we will see Him as He is. We will start to reflect the glory of God in greater and greater measure and, and we, will, we will be like Him, which is exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The reason that He foreknew, the reason He set His love on a group of people, the reason that He predestined that group that He set His love upon was for this one reason, that they would be conformed into the image of His Son. Those He set His love upon. Those that John says He lavished His love on and who are now called children of God, He called for this one purpose to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And on that last day, when Jesus comes in all of His glory, we will, mark it down, be like Him. Today we are His children, and we can rest in that. One day we will be like Him, and we can long for that. All of this is because He predestined us for glory. There is nothing more glorious than to be like Jesus. That, that is where we are going. That is what we will one day be like. And we will one day be like Him because of who we are at this very moment. That is the glorious identity that should drive the church in all of her righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come trembling under the weight of Your Word this morning. Thankful for Your goodness, kindness, mercy. We're so thankful that in spite of who we are, we are called children of God. That you in your love have lavished your kindness upon us in such a way that our eyes were opened and we came to you in repentance and faith. If there's one here this morning that has never turned to you in repentance and faith, and maybe they're a religious person, maybe they're one that believes they're a Christian but is outside of the faith. Father, I pray you would do what only you can do and open blinded eyes that they would see their need for you, that they would contemplate the reality of their sin and they would run for your mercy. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, I pray that we would be reminded continually of our identity, that we would rest in the fact that we are your children, that we are going to be glorified and that it's all because of the work